Welcome back to Mafia. And in this Audio Boom original podcast series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and those who are actually there. Our sponsors are Hems and Casper. Previously on Mafia. Once in every generation comes along a dynamic criminal genius mind. Intelligent, ruthless, and visionary. He put the organized into organized crime. Lucky Luciano is a quintessential American. Using his cunning and his intelligence, rises to a position of fantastic power and wealth. Now we'll see how Charles Lucky Luciano set about transforming the mob from competing criminal factions into a powerful network that would rule over America's underworld. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. There's no question that Luciano invented the modern mafia. But there was one crime fighter who was determined to take Luciano down. We have made a real start on cleaning the gangsters out of New York. This is Mafia. At the end of 1931, Charles Lucky Luciano, the new King of New York, gathered the top leaders of 20 Mafia factions from across the country to a national conference in Chicago. Selwyn Rabb, a former New York Times crime reporter and author of Five Families. He laid out the rules. Here's how we're going to operate. This whole concept that had never existed before. Luciano proposed an entirely new business structure for organized crime. He created a whole new texture, a whole new way of how criminals could operate in America, organized criminals. What he did was he turned predatory street gangs which had many internal and external wars with each other. He turned them into this one single octopus of an organization that was so different from anything else that ever existed. And it took the American law enforcement almost 60 years to get a handle on it. It was so terrific. Luciano also created an innovation without precedent in the Sicilian Mafia or any American gangsters, the commission. The commission would be the board of directors. If any rules for the Mafia throughout the country had to be changed, it would be up to the commission. And if there were any territorial disputes or disputes over, uh, over rackets, the commission would take care of it. Now, the concept there was to prevent wars. And now Luciano's new and improved mafia went to work. One industry in particular was at the top of Luciano's expansion plans. Journalist and historian Douglas Valentine. Luciano said he was going to turn prostitution into an industry like the A&P, which is a supermarket chain. As Ellen Polson, author of The Case Against Lucky Luciano, explains, he moved fast to take over prostitution in New York. The scene changed in New York City for prostitution in 1931, the same year that Lucky Luciano took over the underworld in New York. And reputed members of his crime family began going from door to door, knocking on the doors of these madams where they kept these small houses of prostitution and shaking them down or asking them for a cut of the money that was coming in. 
And because they were tough, formidable madams from the turn of the century, they said no. They said, go away, you're not getting in on this. So it was not a simple matter to take over the business of one of these crusty old birds. Women like Jenny the Factory, women like Jenny Wilde, were very, very formidable women to be reckoned with. When the no's and the slams on the doors came enough times, they started knocking on the doors with lead clubs. And they would walk in and blackjack the madams in front of the Johns, in front of the prostitutes and the maids. They just blackjacked them until they were bloody on the floor. They would return very often throwing firebombs through the doors and setting fire to these apartments. So enough of these incidents convinced these madams that they had to go along with the new order and join what was called the combination. And once Luciano's combination, or combine for short, had the brothels under their control, his men kept rule with intimidation and fear. It wasn't easy to control women who had previously been independent. And of course, the threats were simple threats like cutting one's tongue to really heinous things like being buried alive. But the mobsters were not very sophisticated in, in the way that they intimidated the women. And they would point to tabloid murders and say, did you see Mrs. So-and-so who was murdered in the bathtub last week? Well, you'll get that. And the Combine used another trick to keep the brothels in check. There were prostitutes who were addicted to opium, which was a very popular drug among mobsters and showgirls and prostitutes of the late 1920s, early 1930s. They also became addicted to heroin. And very often the heroin addiction was precipitated by the mob where they would give them the drugs to keep them addicted. And that was the way that a lot of these prostitutes were controlled, even more than threats of force through addiction. The combination was very lucrative because it encompassed prostitution from Brooklyn all throughout Manhattan and even out into Queens and Nassau County, which are environs of New York City going out about 20, 25 miles. So it was extremely lucrative. And the Combine was just one racket in Luciano's growing empire, as Selwyn Rabb explains. In many ways, he was a mirror image of American capitalism. What he saw coming was labor unions, and uh, there were rackets there. He also saw there was no reason why they couldn't exploit big companies. And one of the ways of doing it was through labor unions. One, you could exploit the labor unions, you could take hold of their uh, organizations, their, their fringe funds, you could, so you could cheat them. At the same time, you had a terrific weapon. By controlling the unions, you could threaten work stoppages, strikes. So you'd get uh, what, you, what you call cozy contracts with the management, uh, sweetheart deals. But the management had to pay you off in, in lieu of getting this labor peace. So Luciana was looking at all these things, not just uh, perhaps narcotics, not just bootlegging, not just uh, uh, what they called street shape towns, extortion, burglaries. That to him was old fashioned. He wanted to get into the whole complex 
of American capitalism. Luciano and the commission quickly spread into a vast number of industries and American businesses. The commission was the second government of this country. It really was. Former NYPD detective Joe Coffey. The commission gave the mafia organization. Very simple, one word. They were able to coordinate throughout the country and in some cases throughout the world. They actually controlled a lot of industries in this country, not the least of which was the restaurant business, the gambling industry. Las Vegas is a great example of it. Luciano was getting away with an ever-increasing array of illegal activities, and all without the authorities taking action. They were all-powerful. They had their hand in everything because nobody would look at them. Nobody would even consider investigating them, not the least of which was J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover was the boss of the FBI. In the early 1930s, he launched his War on Crime, eager to make a name for himself. But as Selwyn Rabb explains, the mob were not high on his list of priorities. The mafia was born, and no law enforcement agency in the country had the slightest idea what had happened. And this continued for the most part, certainly with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the paramount law enforcement, and the only national law enforcement agency that could really combat the mafia. And they didn't do a thing. For almost 40 years, they sat on their hands. And the reason was that J. Edgar Hoover would never acknowledge it even existed. He thought they were a ragtag bunch of Italian hoodlums in some cities, and it wasn't important. Now, there are various reasons uh, for why Hoover abdicated his responsibility. Even though there were conditions existed and arrests were made uh, and hearings were held, that there seemed to be a national crime organization. Number one, uh, from the 30s into the 70s, the FBI was composed mainly of agents from small towns, from mid-America, from southern America, who could never understand or cultivate Italian or Sicilian criminals, or really penetrate. They had no idea of the culture. Number two, that Hoover was dependent at that time mainly for Democratic, the Democratic-run Congresses and presidency. And the Democratic strongholds were in the very cities that the Mafia had political influence. New York, Chicago, uh, Boston, Philadelphia. And Hoover sort of backed off. If he had really cracked down, or anyone had cracked down on the Mafia, they would be endangering a lot of politicians, dem mainly Democratic politicians in these cities. And it was those people who controlled Hoover's budget. Instead, Hoover went after far easier targets. Ellen Polson. The FBI, during the mid-1930s, had been very much preoccupied with the desperados of the American Midwest, people like Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, and they never gave organized crime much interest or attention. FBI files have about one page on Lucky Luciano from 1935, a very cursory look at him, and then he's not mentioned again in FBI documents. So they were not at all interested in what was going on in the New York underworld during the 1930s. The FBI mostly went after the headline public enemies like John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd. There are a lot of opinions about why the FBI was not interested in organized crime during the 1930s. The most apparent 
is probably that they couldn't build their reputation on people who were so far underground that no one knew about them. There were no babyface Nelsons, no machine gun Kellys in the underworld, in the families of New York City that the FBI could build its reputation on. People weren't interested in the Lanskys because they didn't know who they were. And the FBI during the 30s preferred to build their name on very flamboyant desperados of the American heartland. Hoover had essentially denied that there was a national crime syndicate. He said, these are local gangsters and this is the job of the local police to deal with them. He didn't want to get involved with these people because they're very well connected politically. Realizing nobody was going to come after him, Luciano could expand his vision and develop new ways for the Mafia to grow. By 1930 standards, uh, Lucky Luciano wasn't even a multimillionaire anymore, he was a billionaire. Under the alias Charles Ross, Luciano took a suite in the Waldorf Astoria, one of the most luxurious hotels in the world. The kind of money he was reaping in millions every week. <laughs> and he suddenly became a really sharp dresser, uh, had ladies on his arms all the time, had a private plane. He flew around to racetracks all over the country. Luciano was a bachelor and party animal. He got up late, wore expensive handmade suits and shoes from England, and danced the night away with nightclub singers and chorus girls. And he operated in this kind of almost open fashion as this uh, suave, debonair type who could roam around New York, nightclubs, he had pieces of everything. But Luciano's high life was beginning to get him noticed by the authorities. They began to realize he was a key player in the underworld, despite knowing surprisingly little about him. Police records show Luciano had been arrested 35 times for offenses, ranging from traffic violations to assault and robbery with a gun. And an FBI memo even had Luciano in a conspiracy to smuggle drugs from Europe into the United States. Despite all this, the FBI still ignored him. But there was one man who was determined to bring Luciano down. His name was Thomas E. Dewey. We have made a real start on cleaning the gangsters out of New York. Dewey was a fiercely ambitious lawyer with his mind set on a career in politics. Ellen Polson. Thomas E. Dewey came of age in an era where crime busting was a way for a fledgling politician to rise through the rank and file. He started out as a federal prosecutor and he transferred over to a state office and became the chief prosecutor in charge of organized crime. Dewey was just 33 years old and determined to make a name for himself. He modeled himself after J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI and followed a lot of the director of the FBI's patterns in positioning himself as a crime buster. In two years, we have shown that our people can be protected, that they can be delivered from the grip of the mob. But there was always one gangster at the very top of Dewey's hit list who remained elusive. By the 1930s, Lucky Luciano's involvement in the Mafia was widely known. He'd become the face of organized crime. And Dewey's first target was Lucky Luciano because it was an open secret how important and how big he was, and yet he was untouchable. Dewey uh, started an intensive investigation. But try as he might, 
Dewey couldn't pin anything on him. Luciano was wary of wiretaps, cautious with telephone conversations, and kept no records on paper. But then Dewey got a break thanks to a series of police department wiretaps planted in local brothels. Wiretapping in the early 1930s was instigated by local police precincts and detectives with sleeves rolled up and cigarettes hanging out of their mouth, listening into the local bookers supplying prostitutes for madams by telephone in Coney Island. And these were very simple neighborhood wiretaps that were kept, transcripts were kept in files. And by the time these files were dog-eared and yellowed, they were handed over to Dewey for purposes of building his case. Dewey discovered that the Combine organization controlled around 300 establishments across the city. As he dug further into the files, he began to uncover the names of those involved. He amassed information on some people who were considered to be lieutenants in Luciano's crime family, but also a lot of people whom they really did not know who they were connected to. It was just they grasped at straws to figure out who these underworld characters were. They discovered that a top Luciano enforcer named David Little Davy Batillo was overseeing combine operations. In February 1936, Dewey decided to act. The night of February 2nd, 1936 was a very exciting night for the streets of New York. Dewey sent out squads of police cars to arrest prostitutes and madams in their flats throughout the city and brought them, hauled them all into the landmark building in Lower Manhattan, the Woolworth Building. There they began to take their statements now, most of these women lied, and they later said, I told a bunch of lies, because they're not going to come out and tell their real name when they've never used their real name. So it was not easy to get these women to agree to testify against the mob, and what they had to do was use threats and coercion. Again, here they were being threatened, and they were threatened with We'll, we'll put you in for possession of a gun. We'll put you in for possession of narcotics. You won't see the light of day for three to seven years. We'll get you on the Sullivan Law, which was the gun law. So they had ways, and they influenced them to talk about the people who had been in charge of the combination. These arrested women were definitely placed between a rock and a hard place. They had nowhere to go. Dewey's men continued to put pressure on the women to talk, and they knew just how to do it. So many of them were addicted to heroin when they were arrested that cops waited until the fourth day of the cold turkey withdrawal when they were climbing the walls and desperate to get them to agree to testify against the mob. Dewey's investigators managed to get three or four people to flip, to turn. Selwyn Rabb. And incredibly, they testified they had seen Luciano at meetings where he discussed what kind of percentage his family was getting from these whorehouses. Luciano knew that Dewey was after him. I mean, he had a lot of uh, people in the police department and elsewhere who were on the, t who were on the make and were on the take. 
and uh, slipping him whatever information they could. So he uh, flew to uh, Arkansas, where he thought he'd be safe in Hot Springs, Arkansas, which was almost a mob-run town. And um, Dewey, within very questionable <laughs> constitutional methods, managed to send down New York State troopers who really kidnapped uh, Luciano, got him on a train and hurried him back to New York, and it led to a very explosive trial. Even before the trial started, the newspapers had convicted Luciano. The New York Daily News called him the droopy-eyed czar of the oldest profession. The newspaper coverage of the trial was instrumental in Luciano's conviction. He was known as the Vice Lord from day one. It was front page every day in papers like the New York Mirror and the Daily News. And it was quite a change from prior vice lords who had been tried and convicted in the 1920s. Several years prior, a very big vice lord named Nick Montana had been tried with very little interest in the part of the press or the people of the city of New York. By the time Luciano went to trial, it seemed like there was a, a mechanism in place to convict him in the newspapers with phrases like vice lord in large headlines. On May 12, 1935, the trial began and Dewey delivered his scathing opening statement. Luciano will be shown not to have placed any of the women in houses or taken money from them. Instead, he set up his apartment in the Waldorf Astoria and was the czar of the ring. We will show that Luciano's function was to rule. All other defendants were his servants. Dewey had lined up a staggering 68 witnesses, mostly prostitutes, pimps, and madams, who'd been promised shorter sentences, probation, or immunity in return for aiding the prosecution. But this would also be a test case for a new law he'd designed specifically to trap the Mafia dons. Those at the top of the tree who would usually keep their hands clean by getting their underlings to do the dirty work. The strategy that Dewey used was quite innovative, and he really doesn't get credit for it in, in the popular imagination. What he did was he brought together a special session of the New York State Legislature to bring in something called the Joinder Law, which was a precursor to what's popularly known today as the RICO Law. He brought together elements of a case to create a conspiracy and was able to put Luciano in the defendant's dock with 12 very unsavory looking characters, which definitely had an impact on the jury. He didn't look quite so dapper or so handsome in the company of a lot of mugs from the streets of New York. Dewey planned to depict the women as desperate victims of the Depression terrorized and exploited by the Combine's ruthless enforcers. The trial consisted of madams being interviewed on the witness stand under oath, almost more than prostitutes. I think the prosecutors wanted to use madams because they were more articulate. They were businesswomen and they knew how to express themselves better. And they had a bigger ax to grind. The madam who was 
hit over the head with the lead stick, for example, went on the witness stand to testify that there was blood all over the place when she was attacked by the very men who were sitting there in the defendant's area. So women who were up there to testify had a big bone to pick with these men, and they almost used it as their opportunity to get even. But when it came to pinning evidence on Lucky Luciano, Dewey fell short. One of his key witnesses was the notorious Madame Koki Flo. In the annals of this trial, the name that stands out the most is Koki Flo. She was allegedly a madam, although it seems debatable considering that she was a junkie. In the lowest sense of the word, she was very strongly addicted to heroin and actually testified on the stand in the throes of withdrawal, where she was given brandy by the judge and allowed to rest on a cot in the next room during several re recesses during her testimony. Koki Flo's testimony was typical of the testimony that all of the women gave on the witness stand. It was hearsay. She heard Luciano was going to bring everybody together like a chain of supermarkets. She heard this and she heard that. The idea that he would discuss in the presence of prostitutes, even a madam, the kind of mundane business stuff just didn't work. It looked like a fix. They got these um, witnesses to really exaggerate or to invent testimony. With doubt being cast over the evidence, Dewey seemed to be faltering. But then Luciano, going against his lawyer's advice, insisted on taking the witness stand. Luciano was so self-assured that he did something that most criminal defendants, especially in his uh, ilk, should never do. He testified. He thought he could really outwit Tom Dewey on the witness stand. Dewey's demeanor while interviewing Lucky Luciano while Luciano was under oath on the witness stand was very brilliant. For four hours, Dewey grilled Luciano about his previous convictions, his taxes, and his association with other gangsters. As the court transcripts revealed, he had Luciano on the ropes. I am asking you, do you tell the truth when you are under oath? I'm telling the truth now. You don't want to answer that question, do you? I didn't say I told the truth all the time, but now I'm telling the truth. People say that Luciano was a liar, and that became apparent while he was on the witness stand because Thomas E. Dewey got him in several lies interviewing him about questions, about vice, about gambling, about weapons possession. And Luciano's one attempt at humor fell flat and no one laughed at the joke. And quite a big note was made of that in the papers, that here was this man purporting to be something that he obviously wasn't. He got him to show his underworld side, and a side that wasn't very funny to most people, wasn't very suave or sophisticated to others. So Dewey used his own innate education and intelligence to sort of do a battle of wits with Luciano, while the latter was actually in a very vulnerable position on the witness stand. It was terrible. He was really uh, lacerated by Dewey's question. 
Dewey's onslaught reduced Luciano to a sweating, squirming wreck. Far from the image he tried to present to the world of the debonair and honest businessman, he was exposed as a tax evader. You have not paid a dime to the state government yet. Is that right? That's right. And that is because the federal state prosecutes big gangsters and the state does not by income tax. Isn't that so? I don't know. Dewey even brought out information very embarrassing to Luciano that he had once, when he was a young man, had been an informer in a narcotics investigation. So it made his whole reputation look a little uh, tainted. Here was this tough, tough guy. Turned out that once he had been a rat to save his skin. In the end, Dewey's summation to the jury described Luciano's testimony as a shocking, disgusting display of sanctimonious perjury, at the end of which I am sure not one of you had a doubt that before you stood not a gambler, not a bookmaker, but the greatest gangster in America. The jury was convinced. Luciano was convicted on 62 counts of compulsory prostitution. And the judge, Justice McCook, handed Luciano a sentence that he hoped would act as an example to others. I am not here to reproach you, but since there is no excuse for your conduct nor for your rehabilitation to administer adequate sentence, I hereby pronounce a sentence to serve from 30 to 50 years. The sentence probably did not fit the crime, but it was an instrument on the part of Dewey and the prosecutor's office to try to rid New York of the elements of organized crime that were the most threatening. Overnight, Dewey was a crime-busting hero, and it was the start of a meteoric career. He became the governor of New York in 1942 and twice ran for the presidency. Once the alliance between criminals and politicians is smashed, racketeering will come to a prompt end. I still get madder at Dewey's crap more than anything else. That little shit with the mustache comes right out and admits he got me for everything else but what he charged me with. He knew I didn't have a fucking thing to do with prostitution, not with none of them broads. But Dewey was such a goddamn racketeer himself, in a legal way, that he crawled up my back with a frame and stabbed me. Luciano tried to fight back. He appealed against his sentence and had the prostitutes who testified against him rounded up and persuaded to change their story. Several key witnesses in the trial, Cokie Flo, Nancy Pressa, Mildred Balitza, the most important witnesses, were kidnapped in a gentle kind of way, that they met up with the mobsters, all is forgiven kind of mentality, and re-addicted to heroin almost immediately. Once they were re-addicted, they brought them cross-country to offices in California, signed briefs that they were rescinding their prior testimony and that they did not mean it, that they told a bunch of lies. and. They dropped out of sight. It's assumed they were murdered. But Luciano's appeal failed. He was sent to the isolated maximum security Clinton Penitentiary in Danimora, close to the Canadian border. Nicknamed Siberia, it was 500 miles from New York and a world away from his luxurious Manhattan lifestyle. The sentence hit Luciano very badly. As evidence in, in photographs of him 
taken while he was at Dannemora or taken during transfer from Dannemora, you could see the difference in his appearance. He looked very haggard and very angry. The sentence angered him because he was in a place that was so physically uncomfortable, the Siberia of the prison system, and because it threatened to undermine his power, it was a debilitating sentence. It must have been a shock, staggering to Lucky, that suddenly he shipped off to what is known as the icebox of New York State. He was sent up to a prison, Dannemora, which is close to Canada, a freezing place in the winter. And um, what a come down from a suite at the Waldorf Towers to a cell. When they told me I was going to Dannemora, I wasn't sure I could make it. It meant moving out of the Waldorf Towers into a sewer. The worst part of it was we didn't have any connections up there, and that meant I was in for a rough time. I was willing to put up a million-dollar bond, and I told them that as soon as I heard that I was going to Dannemora. But once they had me, they wasn't going to let me go. But anyone who thought Luciano was finished would be mistaken. Lucky still managed to have the trappings of a boss, even in prison. Uh, he was referred to always as mister. There was no question uh, that bribes, uh, bribes were paid to guards. He had better food. He managed to operate in that sense uh, in a smaller realm. There's no question that he got the kind of treatment in prison that the ordinary prisoner never got. Good food, good hope. People were around him taking care of everything. He didn't have to do any prison work. He was still in a mini world in charge even though he wasn't in the world he wanted to be in. And it was now that Luciano's foresight in setting up the commission became clear. One of the uh, rules that Lucky instituted was that the boss, even if imprisoned, remains the boss. There might be an acting boss operating for him, but even couriers could get there and really major decisions, say there had to be somebody who had to be assassinated or bumped off, or there was a change in philosophy on some business bracket, what they would do. Lucky was still consulted. So in effect, even though he was almost a thousand miles away from New York City, his haunts in downtown and midtown Manhattan, he still had a lifeline. The wisdom of Lucky uh, Luciano's framework and organizational skills to make sure that each family continued to thrive, even if the boss was eliminated or something happened to the boss, that you weren't dependent on one individual. Ironically, Lucky Luciano proved that. When he was sentenced, the family didn't dissolve. Uh, Frank Costello, for the most part, one of his top aides, took over as acting uh, godfather. Uh, he's, in effect, he was running the organization. The organization continued to function. And this is, again, <laughs> the wisdom of Lucky Luciano, that even though he the originator, is the first boss to be convicted. He proves his point. It functions well, even if he's not in control day by day. It's a testimony to his power in the underworld that Luciano's reign was not ended by the prison sentence. And there's evidence that he was visited in prison by people like Meyer Lansky and Costello, and they actually waived fingerprint requirements for these people when they went in to visit him. So his power somehow stayed at the top while he was in prison. 
Costello continued to bring in millions of dollars while his boss waited for an opportunity to win his freedom. And he didn't have to wait long. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese launched a surprise attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. The next day, America entered the Second World War. Incredibly, this would provide Lucky Luciano with the break he'd been waiting for. In February 1942, a large troop carrier caught fire and capsized in New York's harbor. One ship, a French ship in Normandy, caught on fire and sank. The prevailing opinion is that it was accidental, but the U.S. Navy and a lot of other government officials believed it could have been sabotage. Many of the men who worked on the docks were from Italy, a nation America was now at war with. When the Navy attempted to investigate, they found the waterfront an impenetrable world. Eric Desenhall, author of The Devil Himself, explains. The longshoremen by nature are not the kind of guys who take well to men in uniform, government uniform, coming onto the docks and saying, I'd like you to snitch. So Roosevelt is distraught by this. World, uh, uh, Pearl Harbor has just happened. The Navy is explaining to him, Mr. President, we don't control the docks. And Roosevelt, what do you mean we don't control the docks? We're the US government. Well. Mr. President, you were governor of New York. Do you remember who ran the docks? Ah, okay. And they knew that they were in some ways mobbed up, that the Luciano family, to a large part, ran the waterfront. So what's to be done? Robert Lacey is author of Meyer Lansky, The Thinking Man's Gangster. The FBI and the war intelligence authorities suddenly realized they the only way they were going to find out um, about what was going on on the waterfront uh, in New York was to actually come to terms with the so-called underworld, figures like Lucky Luciano. The trouble was, Luciano was in jail. Luciano was so powerful that they, the mafia bosses would not consent they, these are not patriots. They're not stepping up to, to, to the government and saying, yes, sir, and saluting. They're saying, we have to get approval from the boss, our boss. Our boss is not the president of the United States. Our boss is Lucky Luciano, and he's in prison. The Navy needed a go-between, so they approached Luciano's associate, his childhood friend, Meyer Lansky. Lansky already had impeccable anti-Nazi credentials. In the 1930s, New York's Jewish community had been threatened by the rise of the pro-Nazi German-American Bund. Jewish leaders had turned to Lansky, one of the few members of their community with the muscle to confront the Nazi thugs. The Bund found themselves under siege by Meyer's boys. Meyer and Ben Siegel, and Meyer actually personally went to some of these rallies. They would go to some of these rallies and bust them up. They would hit them over the head with bats, and they would really terrorize these Bund members. When the Navy approached him in 1942, Lansky immediately agreed to help. He persuaded them to move Luciano from the harsh conditions of Danamora to a prison known as the Country Club of the Penal System. Grand Meadow, close to New York. 
Robert Lacey. It's an extraordinary story. Lansky says, can Luciana be moved? And then you see, because there was an official inquiry into this after the war, you see the actual document saying, move Luciano. Um, a Mr. Meyer Lansky is going to come up and visit him. Do not request Mr. Lansky's uh, passport. Do not take Mr. Lansky's uh, fingerprints. What then resulted was a deal where Luciano could meet with his men in prison, where he hadn't been able to do that before. And yes, he, he gave the order to cooperate with the Navy, but he also was allowed to conduct business. And sure enough, Luciano acts like he's a patriot now, even though he was still an Italian citizen and never a naturalized American citizen. And he sends out the word through Lansky and other couriers, peace on the waterfront. It was an extraordinary deal, but it yielded almost immediate results. In June 1942, eight Nazi spies were arrested following a tip-off from mob-controlled fishermen. Not only would there be no sabotage, there would be no work stoppages. Things were going to run smoothly. It's the word from the boss. What an example. A man in prison has so much power that he could control of the essential harbor in New York City. If you need any testimonial to his power, that's it. And the following year, the mob was presented with an even more dramatic opportunity to lend assistance to the war effort. The invasion of Sicily, home country of the mafia. Eric Desenhall. Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano bring Sicilian assets, uh, contacts in New York to naval intelligence and help design the maps, determine what the tides were, what good invasion locations were, uh, beach terrain, and where Nazi strongholds were. As American troops poured ashore in Sicily, the Mafia's assistance proved invaluable. But the Navy was playing a dangerous game. The only thing worse than Operation Underworld, as it was called, failing, what if it succeeds? You're now in business with the mob. Sicily was conquered in just six weeks, but this was not a story that the U.S. government wanted made public. Now, of course, Lucky uh, didn't want to do this without a, without a quid pro quo. Luciano asked for a pardon. He wanted a sentence in some way commuted, and uh, in, in effect saying, hey, I, look what I did for the government, now it's my turn. Guess who's the governor of New York at that time? No other person but Thomas E. Dewey, who's uh, convictions of Luciano and some other hoods had elevated and catapulted him into the governorship and also the run for the U.S. presidency in 1944. Thomas E. Dewey, the man who fought so hard to put Luciano behind bars, was forced to grant Luciano executive clemency in 1946 on the condition that he would be deported to Italy and never allowed back in the U.S. Dewey's resentment was clear. Upon the entry of the United States into the war, Luciano's aid was sought by the armed services in inducing others to provide information concerning possible enemy attack. It appears that he cooperated in such an effort, although the actual value of the information produced is not clear. Luciano was released from prison and the mob's wartime collaboration hushed up. He'd served just 10 years of his 50-year sentence when he left American shores on February 10, 1946, bound for Sicily. 
Uh, Lucky was certainly no outcast. He had this terrific going away party on board a ship in New York before he left where all the big shot gangsters in New York came to see him off and they had a regal feast. And uh, in Italy, uh, he spent most of his time in Naples, although he was a Sicilian. And he really wasn't out of the picture. Uh, he was involved in numerous narcotics deals uh, because Italy at that time was really becoming important in the transfer of narcotics, not just to the U.S., but worldwide. Heroin was becoming a big, a big uh, moneymaker for the mafia. Luciano may have been banned from operating inside the States, but he didn't confine himself to Sicily for long. Within months, Luciano was traveling secretly to Havana, Cuba, and was back in business. Cuba was better. Havana was better than Las Vegas. Robert J. Campbell was on the U.S. Justice Department's strike force against organized crime. First of all, it was closer to New York. It was close to Florida. They could bring these people on airplanes, you know, quickly, and lots of them. Bring the entertainers in. Have an open city with every kind of uh, vice you could imagine with girls and pornography and cockfights and whatever guys like. Havana was the best of the best. A week-long meeting was held at the Hotel National, where Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Frank Costello, and other high-ranking mafia members discussed the heroin trade. Now, while the FBI wasn't keeping close tabs on Lucky, one U.S. law enforcement agency, the U.S. Department of Narcotics, Narcotics Bureau, and one Harry Anslinger had been very uh, vigilant against uh, narcotics by the mafia and others. And he found out that um, there was a big meeting that Luciano was chairing in Havana. And uh, they uh, made such a fuss of it that the Havana, the Cuban government at that time, corrupt as it was, had to kick out uh, Luke Lucky. So from now on, he was, um, I guess he had to uh, confine himself to Italy. In 1957, in Palermo, Sicily, Luciano was reported to be overseeing meetings with more than 30 Sicilian and American mafia leaders to create the world's largest heroin exporting rackets. And it wasn't a bad life. He had his girlfriends, his mistresses. He had plenty of money. And uh, he lived in regal fashion there. He was, a king of, he was a king of the mafia, even though he was abroad. People consulted him. The money still came in. And he had good times there, even if it wasn't in New York. The authorities continued to pursue Luciano, and in 1962, he was targeted for arrest as an alleged member of a ring that smuggled $150 million worth of heroin into the United States. But Luciano wasn't destined to spend any more time behind bars. Before the law could move in, Charles Luciano died of a heart attack in Italy. He was 64. Luciano was the godfather, the guy, the main guy of all time. Former NYPD detective Joe Coffey. He put together the mob as we know it today and as we've known for the past 50 years. Luciano was the power to be. He ran the show, willing to resort to violence if he had to. And the system worked. I mean, the guy was good. Charles Lucky Luciano's reign had been remarkable. He transformed the Mafia from ramshackle warring street gangs into a highly sophisticated criminal empire. Here is somebody who comes along in 1931 and envisions a business, in effect a business concept, 
How are we going to continue to operate? People are going to die, people are going to be removed, business ideas are going to change. And he has this organizational genius that he could create something that still exists for the most part today. Now, do you know of any organization? Look what's happened to the American automobile industry, the steel industry. They're out of business. Total new industries have occurred. Under him, the mafia had grown to be bigger than General Motors. And by the time he'd finished, the mob was raking in $40 billion a year. Ronald Goldstock, a former director of the New York State Task Force Against Organized Crime. I think Luciano's legacy is the, the existence of the modern mob, uh, Italian-American mob in the United States. It was taking um, what Maranzano had structured and making it far more sophisticated. It was moving the mob into criminal activities that were not traditional. It was allowing the mob to work with uh, other criminals, uh, different ethnic groups. It was um, thinking more broadly um, about what an organization uh, dedicated to criminality could do to make money. Doug Valentine. Lucky Luciano is a fantastic character in American history. Uh, I believe um, Time magazine voted him one of the 100 most influential people of the 20th century. He's a, um, a, a real American in the sense that of, a, of an outlaw, and uh, our American society um, tends to venerate its outlaws as much as it does its presidents or, or movie stars, or, um, and sometimes all three of those things are wrapped up into one. But while Lucky Luciano may have been a resourceful mastermind, capable of presenting himself as a sophisticated, even glamorous gentleman, he had clawed his way to the top through betrayal and murder. And his relentless pursuit of money condemned countless victims to drug addiction and prostitution. He may have been the criminal genius who put the organized into organized crime, but he was still a thug. In the next episode, we'll explore the life and times of another infamous gangster, his picture's on page one of newspapers. His name is all over TV. He's, uh, he's a headline figure. Someone who'd take the tactic of concealing extreme brutality behind sharp suits and an air of sophistication to a whole new level. Here was this guy, he had this come and get me attitude to law enforcement. He made fun of them. He was Moby Dick in the organized crime world. Everybody wanted to prosecute John Gotti. The Dapper Don, John Gotti. This has been an Audio Boom original. Thanks again to our sponsors, Hims and Casper, for their support. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.